Hello listeners and welcome to the Afrimoto podcast where we look to celebrate African history, people and culture by telling our story. As always, our hope is that it fills you with enough curiosity to go and do your own deeper research. Karibuni to any new listeners to the Afrimoto world. We'd love you to check out our previous Afrimoto episodes which can be found on this podcast platform. Thank you so much for tuning in today because we are headed to Southern Africa for part one of the Undi Kingdom. A shout out to my Southern Africans out there. Afriwetu has landed on your borders. Before we begin, please remember to visit us on our socials. Our handle is at Afriwetu, where we shall be posting interesting facts, stories, updates, and links for further study for all you lovely people. But for now, just sit back and enjoy the journey. So as usual, we start with getting out our maps so we can track where we are on our continent today. So if you look at modern day Mozambique, the area of Manu was the HQ of this particular kingdom. And in successive years, this kingdom then grew within the Maravi Empire to cover an area that spanned across to Malawi and Zambia as well. Now, now that we know where we are, let's go to the origin story. So if you're with us for the last episode, but one, I think, on the Maravi Empire, you will remember that the origin story starts from then. And in fact, with the Maravi Empire, we find out about how the people came out from the Luba Empire, migrating around the 15th century. In fact, some say as early as the 13th century. These people were led by Karonga Chinkole Firi. The word Kalonga may be derived from Kulonga, which means to gather together. It is he who is accredited to being the founder of the Maravi Empire. Once they had landed and were still settling formally, the Kalonga then sent forth his son and nephew, Kanyenda, Mukadzula, and Kabunduli Firi, to explore and also see which lands could be conquered. Before the two of them returned with their party, in fact, on their way back from their conquests, this Kalonga died. And then his nephew, who was in the city at the time, on the matrilineal side, then ascended to the throne. And he took his people to Mankamba to finally settle. And from here grew what we now know as the Marabi Empire. This empire encompassed a number of people, but the four more well-known clans who tended to dominate were the Firi, who were the royal clan, the Mwali, the Nkoma, and the Banda. Afriwetu we covered a little bit more about them in season four, episode four, so please go and check it out. So, for those of you who are wondering, what on earth does this have to do with Aundi? Well, here it is. Starting with a note that there are two versions of the story, so I shall just briefly cover both. 
The first is that the new Kalonga, once he had settled in, then sent his brother Undi to conquer the lands as part of the expansion of the Maravi Empire as a whole which kind of makes sense and stands to reason. And then it is then that Undi lands and conquers the territory and made it a tributary kingdom of the Maravi. The second version I found, which is the more popular one, is it claims that the root cause was not that Undi was sent out, but that it was a much more acrimonious exit by the Kalonga's younger brother and that it came from a succession dispute within the Firi clan. 17th century drama. So, based on the matrilineal lines, on the death of a Kalonga, he is succeeded by those in said matrilineal line. In this case, when the Kalonga died and Undi made a bid for the throne, he didn't succeed. It is said that Undi did have a great deal of internal support from the courts, the councillors, and a good number of the royal clan. This, however, was not enough as crucially what he didn't have was the support of the decision makers on who would be the Kalonga. They backed and crowned his nephew who was their choice. Aundi wasn't best pleased by the final decision and so he's gathered his staff and his people, most of whom were the women from the royal Fury clan. This becomes significant to note as we go ahead. But anyway, they then left Manthimba and headed west for new lands. Around the same time, his fellow kin, Kafuiti, also left, and in his party, his nephew, Lundu, whose story we shall hear in a later episode this series, it's all, all of it interconnected, I promise. As a quick aside, to be honest, personally, I'm more inclined to believe this version, the second one of him sort of like, you know, succession dispute. But I would love to hear back from the descendants of their versions if they're different. And if not, if there are any more origin story details that we can share with the Afriwa to please give us a shout. Either way, Lundi with his followers and army in their westward march headed towards the Kapoche River, which is a tributary of the Great Zambezi River. Their route took them through Deza and Lilongwe. They conquered lands around the Idizanyanama mountain range that bordered Malawi and Mozambique. They continued along the plains of Nsengeland in what is modern-day Mozambique's Tete district. As Undi traversed these lands, he was sure to leave chiefs and leaders who were loyal to him in charge. Undi and his people finally settled at Mano, where he established his capital. So, going back to the key fact of his exit with the royal Fury women. Now, this is important to note because as we saw with the Maravi Empire, their exit had a direct impact on the former's ruling capacity. The fact was that when it came to getting heirs to the throne for a period of the empire, she had to rely on the Undi kingdom as it was the women who held the royal lineage and their children were the official heirs. So that means that the empire almost had to like outsource their Kalongas. What it also shows is that the bond between the two polities was still very much in place and strong. Family ties were not broken. Okay, so now that our people have settled, let's head into the governance of this kingdom. So let's start with the most senior levels of the kingdom and then move down the ranks. First off, fun facts. I really love these fun facts. 
The Undi kingdom is named after the brother Undi, who led his people out of Maravi to the new home. And then furthermore, all subsequent rulers were then given the name Undi as a title to mean king or ruler. This was the same with the Kalonga, where the founder's name became the title, and later we shall meet the Makewana title, which also followed the same premise. So that would mean that the Undi, being the ruler, was obviously the highest rank in the kingdom and all its tributary states, where he led the kingdom based out of Mano. That being said, it's important to note that he was not an absolute monarch. He ruled and relied on his council of advisors who were a key part of the governance and of the kingdom. The role and the powers of the council expanded to the military power held by the Undi. So in simple terms, although he was able to com issue commands, these were followed subject to the council's support. This doesn't mean to say that his role was ceremonial. Actually, he was still held with very high regard and respect and had the power to use good old-fashioned fear of reprisals if his commands were not followed. It was a balancing act of authority. And speaking of military commands, from what I could find, it seems that the kingdom did not have a centralized military and instead it depended on its tributary chiefs. Remember all the loyal ones that Undi the founder had planted on his way to Mano? Well, they plus more would send their forces when required or called upon by the Undi. Outside of their loyalty to the kingdom, the Undi, as hinted before, held powers as reprisal and was also the holder of a heck of a lot of wealth. So he could also impose economic sanctions on those who dared to refuse his call for arms. So the Undi had a very senior role in the judicial matters of the kingdom as well. He dealt with the most severe and weighty matters such as murder or where there had been serious disputes which needed his intervention, like in royal slash high-level nobility disputes or the very serious allegations of sorcery. His council also had a, a key role in this space. So they arbitrated cases of lesser charges within their own polities. They were also seen as having the important role of having been able to manage the Undi's power so that he would not overstep his authority even in this judicial space. Because they acted, it seemed, like the voice of the people. The Undi was considered the ultimate owner of the Chewa lands and that they were under his direct control. With this came the power to divide and issue territory to his loyalists, which to be honest he did and this created a very decentralized kingdom, which brings us nicely to the next level down in the governance structure. So this next level from the council were the tributary kings and chiefs, some of whom were either from the Fury clan and some who could claim a direct familial, a familial bond to the Undi. They were junior kingsmen who had been sent out in the course of the kingdom's expansion and established themselves in these areas. The Undi's governance set up in Mano was replicated in the tributary states. They also ruled with the support of a council, who were seen as a people's representatives, and that of the state's and overall kingdom's interests. They were a group of selected and trusted headmen who themselves had their own smaller polities, the villages, that they ruled over. Within this council, you then had the royal clans from the more junior slash minor houses, as well as those from the non-royal clans. 
And across all these levels of rulers, each one had their own council and the positions held tended to be hereditary with the family members being involved in the selection. The councils here had a stabilizing influence, especially in matters succession, because we've already seen how that can be a problem, as their advice and views would be a consideration in the choice for the next ruler. So it tempered, you know, disputes to a certain extent. And in these lower levels, the Undi was able to intervene or interfere and share his views and opinions when it came to the choice of the next rulers. And although he had no direct authority to select the next one, his stake was still valuable and gave some strength to their preferred potential candidates. And when that didn't work, well, some of the Undis went ahead and created new positions. Anyway, once the ruler was chosen, the Undi would be approached as the final stage of approval, as it was he who would then go ahead to officially accept and install the new ruler. And in theory, at this stage, he could reject them, but if the incoming had the courts and the councillors backing, it would have been almost impossible for the Undi to stop his taking the role. The power in the services of both the Undi and the lower-ranking rulers were based on the tribute in the form of goods and or labor from their people. These tributes of goods formed what was then used to maintain the nobility and in some instances also distributed to loyalists. Even within the same nobility, tributes were paid to those from the lower in the higher ranks and the tributes they received could be used as their own contribution. These tributes range from livestock to grains as well as tools. And now seeing as we're already talking about the people, let's take a look at the society and religion of this kingdom before we close on part one of this kingdom, okay? So before we begin, just to quickly say that on studying the civilization, it seemed only logical to have both society and religion in the same section, considering how intertwined the two were. So here goes. The clan kingship and ties were both political and societal. Like in the Maravi Empire, the Firi clan were considered at the highest level of, of royalty and the Banda were very influential amongst the nobility. And then another very critical layer that has to be added to the clans in the social structure is that of lineages. And please note that these are two very separate yet linked concepts. So your lineage may or may not be aligned with your clan. But of the two, the lineage, which is matrilineal, was the more prominent when it came to one's identity. It was the strongest bond between families and people. And it was this that spilled into the political sphere where political affiliations were based on these lineages. And at this time, it's, I think it's a good time to bring in the kingdom's religion. Now, remember when he spoke of Undi leaving behind him these royal rulers on his journey to Mano? Well, take yourself back there because there was one very significant person who I wanted to highlight here as we look at the spiritual beliefs of the Undi. Her name? Kewan. We also met her and her descendants in the Maravi Empire episodes. But before we get to her, I know I'm doing this, let's take another step back for a moment to give some context. So, consider the Undi's religious authority, which is the highest in his lands. 
He was to use this for the protection, such as countering sorcery, which was strictly forbidden, and also to carry out homage to the deities and ancestors by performing or presiding over the required rituals on or on behalf of his people. Similar rituals were also carried out by the lower-ranking tributary chiefs and headmen, but they deferred to the Undi's more superior status. But of all the powers, the most important was the power to make it rain. And here is where the Undi himself deferred to our Makewana. Now, because of the original Undi and Makewanas, the bond between the two titles and polities continued to be very strong over the decades. It was on his journey to Mano that Undi installed the Makewana, the first one ever at Msinja. So now we can head over and meet her. The Makewana was a chief priestess in charge of the rain shrine and the supremo when it came to all the rain calling related ritual, rituals and this high religious status brought with it the great honor of keeping one of the only two of the Undi's spirit shrine, the one in Misinja. The other shrine was housed in Mano. She had the special distinction and spiritual authority and the Undi relied on her backing in order to retain a level of authority and unity across the kingdom. And this is where we can see the interaction with society. In her high priestess role, she would perform the necessary rainmaker rituals for the Undi as well as the Kalonga of Maravi. And so her backing gave them this credibility that we just mentioned. Her special powers linked to her having a direct line and connection to Chiuta, the supreme deity. Of all the other rain callers and makers, she was the most revered and respected. The others were usually attached to local rulers and were also keepers of their ancestral shrines. Like the Makewana, they were called upon for ceremonial rituals, including for burials and other significant ceremonies. Their role was to intercede with ancestral spirits of the region and for their services, they got both payment and protection from their local ruler. But they deferred to the Makewana in matters higher and where they were unsuccessful. What is interesting to note about these religious positions in the kingdom is that they were not hereditary. And what's more, at least with the Makewana, her role was not linked to or held by any particular clan. In fact, her strongest claim of kinship was that she was considered the wife of Chuta. The first Makewana set the tone as it was said that when they got to Msinja, Mangadazi, the original Makewana, was possessed by Chuta spirit and then began to foretell the future. Outside of her priestess role, the Makewana was also a chieftess in her own right. She ruled over an area in the Idzanglanyama mountain range. She was under the protection of the Undi, but that didn't mean that she couldn't act independently and indeed outside of the related Chewa kings. Her influence was felt and she was consulted as an official of their own courts by the Shona kingdoms further south of the continent. 
This independence is worth mentioning and remembering for later. Well, hold on to it at least until we get to part two. Because it is this that gave her the confidence to get out from under the shadow and not always be in complete submission to the undi. And this became a problem. So as we leave our undi kingdom for now, let us head over and see what else was happening at this period before we close. So, 1732-1734, there was a Crimean Tartar raids into Russia. In 1744, the first Saudi state is founded by Muhammad Ibn Saud. 1762 to 1796, this was the reign of Catherine the Great of Russia. In 1772, Gustav III of Sweden stages a coup d'etat, becoming almost an absolute monarch. In 1779 to 1879, the Osa Wars, I hope I said that right, between British and Boer settlers and the Kosas in the South African Republic. And then this is an important one. In 1791 to 1804, the Haitian Revolution. This was a successful insurrection by slaves against the French colonists in Saint-Dominique. It then became now what we know as Haiti. The revolt began in 1791 and it ended in 1804 with the former colony's independence. The people involved were black, biracial, French, Spanish, British and Polish participants. With the ex-slave Toussaint Louverture, I believe, emerging as Haiti's most prominent general. This was the only slave uprising that led to the founding of a state that we know of today. And it was the first one that was ruled by non-whites and former captives. And it is seen as a defining moment in the history of the black history world. And now, to bring it home. My Afriwatu, how cool were these ancestors? The Undi within the Moravi is such a great example of how things and how our history is not just this boring linear study, but one that is interwoven with layers and complexity. I personally found how, despite the fact that the origin is one based on conflict, the bond of kin overruled all else, which in turn was a strength of the overall Maravi. The importance of kin folded on even in the governance of the Undi's own tributary states, which at the risk of sounding generic, so I do apologize, it is something that we very much associate with our culture. A recurring theme of family bonds is not just being about immediate family, but it extends to the larger concept of family, extended, but also, most importantly, community. And my people, that is our strength, community. So as I leave off there, just to say, as always, it would be great to hear from our Afriwatu from the region, their take on their direct ancestors. For now, I will leave you, but please remember to tune into part two. And until next time, Mubarakiwe! Come on, let me
soka Angombe ambea ndikumanya nkoko soka Soka Makolo wakendani mwana yu anzanga Akumango choka nikumango mwela mbanda kucha Nisinku yake itabindi kina mapunziro Iendi kasu wakumunda kusaka mbewa Madula Songa Songa